You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm bringing you the first in our season of live podcasts recorded at Soho Theatre. You can get more details on them at SohoTheatre.com. This one is with Des Bishop, who you will almost certainly know uh, by reputation, if not uh, having seen him live. Des is huge in Ireland. Um, He doesn't have quite that same profile in the UK. But he has, he's one of those people, I think from the perspective of a, a British comic, he's one of those people who has clearly been around for ages. You go on Amazon and you see all the DVDs of his that you can get and you're like, oh my God, how did I not know more about this guy? In recent years, Des has made a name for himself, or more of a name for himself, doing very, uh, very powerful, very personal work. And most recently of all, uh, and that's going to be the focus of a lot of this show, he's done a show called Made in China, which was about his uh, two or three years that he spent, two years I think he spent uh, in China learning Mandarin uh, to the extent that he can now perform stand-up comedy in Mandarin. Uh, as you will hear throughout the interview, there are uh, the, he's got precedent uh, for these kind of uh, huge, I mean really unique life challenges, uh, and we're going to dig a little bit into exactly why he would do that, why him, uh, and what drives him to do that. So uh, here's Des. I'm just quickly going to mention the next one of these uh, is going to be with the brilliant Nina Conti, and that's on the 5th of May. Go to SohoTheatre.com and remember to enter the discount code FAF. That's just for you, F-A-F-F, to get 25% off your tickets for that. So jump on that and let's sell the fucker out. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is Des Bishop. Would you please welcome the stage with a lot of warm appreciation, the wonderful Mr. Des Bishop. Formally shake hands. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for coming on the show, Des. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you for the, uh, for the performance you've just given. I'd just give you a, a brief cheer if you were here in the room earlier on for Des's show, Made in China. These guys were. They were my front row. They actually haven't moved. Oh, nice work. It's Neil's. Oh, Neil's, actually, you, you, yeah, you, reserved the, you reserved the table for the earlier show. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> For someone that has the body language of someone that resolutely does not want spoken to, Neil's. <laughs> no, Neil's he was doing... a big. He was actually a big laugher throughout the whole. He, show. Oh, was he? He was yeah. in your clapping section. Yeah, he wasn't like an indifferent front row. He was oh, very sweet. much. Yeah, so, actually, I felt very warmed by Neil's presence throughout the show. Very nice. Yeah. Well, tell yeah. us about. Um, tell us first, just in your own words, very quickly, for those of you in the room who didn't see the show or, or are listening on the podcast. You just oh, did, I don't I, know that I'm, we're actually in the room, and it's just we're, after my show. It's just. After after your show, we can still smell Des in the air. Yeah. Um, but just tell us... Ladies. <laughs> just tell us quickly, it's a very unusual show made in China. It's not like any other comedy show I've seen. Just I, I, give, me the, give me the elevator pitch of the show. For well, people that I guess the it. quick pitch is uh, it's called Made in China because it was made in China. I decided for a number of reasons, which we won't get into now, to move to China in 2013 and try to learn enough Chinese to do stand-up comedy in Chinese. In one year, we were making a television show for Irish television at the time. And uh, the live show is just basically about my experiences in China. I mean, the pitch in the show, I sort of say, is that there's so much more to China than a man in front of a tank. So it's kind of just like an alternative way of looking at this incredibly interesting place. Uh, And uh, that's what it is. It's really just an hour-long comedy journey through China that I tell. But the, the main actor is China. Great. And how was it tonight? How did you enjoy the experience of being in this room tonight? Yeah, it was it was great. Now that you know they're still here, some of them I can't exactly diss the crowd. But yeah, uh, you can, you totally <laughs> can. This is the next. No, it was good. It was Tuesday night. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't the biggest energy of a night, but it was it was it was a nice crowd, and there was a couple of unique moments that you know gave yes. it gave it its own and energy. Had- we had some some Canadian born Chinese mm-hmm. that came in late, so we had a bit of fun with them, and then I had a, a Chinese woman from Zhejiang and. That was just fantastic. It was so exciting as an audience member to watch. Oh, that's right. You were there. Someone, what am I telling I was you? There. You, you, no, tell, you tell them what it was like. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it was great, man. It was a great, great show. It was a really interesting show, and it was a really funny show. Now, you're known for documentary comedy. Do you think that's fair? I've been kind of like, not just the documentary, documentaries that you've made on the TV. We'll talk about those as well. But um, the way that you approach your hour-long kind of festival shows is very much like mining your own life for things that have happened and exploring them in detail. Yeah, which kind of happens partially by accident. Uh, but it's definitely something that I like doing. But that has become a thing. Yeah. But it wasn't like a deliberate career decision or anything like that. Okay. So. Is that you, 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 seem, you seem like your hackles are slightly up as if I'm going to go, you've just done this to make money at festivals. No, no, Has that no. accusation been leveled at you all the time? Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course. But, I mean, people, people are going to try to sort of, like, undermine what you do at times anyway. That's absolutely fine. But, uh, no, I mean, it, it, it started, actually, the first time I sort of said, I, I want to do something about something that's not normally comedy fair, mm-hmm. was I, I got testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it for jokes <laughs> although i was uh, i was accused of that one well no i mean it's the funniest cancer surely it's well it's the best <laughs> cancer to get and yes if you're going to get it it might as well be in a, a place that normally produces comedy anyway sure you know like brain cancer even though that's where you make the jokes tends to not be as funny but ball cancer definitely there's some punchlines there so i uh, see they get uncomfortable straight away which is the yeah. best thing about doing jokes <laughs> about cancers you have to get over that so uh no but um basically uh People do sometimes ask me after I do the testicular cancer material, 
did you really have testicular cancer? No way. Yeah, and I always think, come on, man. If you're stuck for material, cancer is not the go-to place. <laughs> you know, sure. It's, like, oh it's not God. the go-to place. Like, oh, man, you know, forget the difference between men and women. I'm going for testicular cancer. Is, this, is, there, is that experience in that show, I just, I'm not totally, I've revised, I've done my revision, but I'm not totally sure of the, the dates. Is that before no, or I after didn't do, the work experience I didn't show? do a show. It often gets misrepresented that I did a show about testicular cancer. No, I just have a lot of jokes about okay. testicular cancer sure. that I wrote literally half of them in the hospital because I just thought of like some funny stuff while I was in the hospital. I mean, I guess whatever. Like, If you examine it, maybe it's a coping mechanism. I don't know, but I okay. definitely thought of a lot of funny things about what I was going through. Sure. And then very quickly started talking about them on stage and quite liked I liked it, actually, I have to say. I liked the feeling. I liked joking about it. I mean, they were getting good laughs anyway, but I did like the fact that, like, this is not the easiest thing to joke about. And Which, You mean, in what way did you like it? You mean because it felt, like, like you say, if, if what you're liking is the fact that it's not easy to joke about, you feel, does that make you feel kind of powerful as a comedian that you can make those subjects work? I don't know. It just felt satisfying, I think would be the better word. I would, okay. like, it was just, I would do it, and I felt like I was very happy with these jokes. You know, I don't know if I felt empowered, but I just thought this is I was just really happy with this stuff. You know, like you, you come up with some good routines and you're really happy. Like I would have preferred not to have had testicular cancer. But but but, you know, I did. I was happy with the, the jokes that that came out of it. So, to speak. OK, and then it made that didn't make me say, oh, I'm going to start doing stuff about difficult subject matter. But it did make it easier later on when. I ended up having to joke. Well, you know, I ended up in a situation where joking about difficult subject matter was a necessity. Yes. Okay. You know, do you know what I mean? How do you mean it was? How do you mean it was a necessity? Well, I got commissioned to make a series about living on minimum wage. Okay. So that happened after the, yes. the jokes about cancer. That's where yes. I was going. We with got that. there. Okay. Yeah. We got. The, we got. The, yeah. Because yeah, it actually directly asked me that question. I and did. We did get to the. I've end. seen that. I've seen the first episode of that. The the Abracababra. was that the first one. Abracababra. I've watched yeah. that on YouTube, and I would recommend that to anyone because that is you, you, the documentary style whereby. You went into six different minimum wage jobs. Four, four, jo- that four one was jobs four. for a month each. A month so each. you seriously committed to living, not just working those jobs, but only surviving on the money from those jobs. Yeah, so it, it came from the book Nickel and Dimed. Maybe some people are familiar, maybe not. Okay. But at the time, that was 2003. It, I, I'm not exactly sure when that book came out, but I know I, I had read it about a year before. And um, it was a very popular book. Barbara Ehrenreich had lived undercover and done like an expose on what it's like to live on a minimum wage in America. And it was really, really interesting read and very effective. And then uh, a development person in RTE called Jennifer Griffin had just come from the UK. She was Canadian, but she, she had been working in various companies in the UK. And she had been holding on to this idea of doing something with the nickel and dimed kind of format, but a little bit different because we'd have to get permission. And, uh, and she actually, I think she was in Ireland nearly a year before she finally said, I'm going to say it to this guy. Okay. She thought that I would be the right guy. She was kind of waiting for the right guy. So when she said it to me, I was like, I'd read the book. I, I thought it was amazing. And uh, so we developed that idea together, and we, we pitched it to... Well, she was in RTE, but we actually... RTE accepted it, and then we put it out to tender, weirdly enough, to a outside broad, an outside company, and, uh, like an independent. And then the independent, we made the pilot. The pilot was what you saw, the, okay. the work experience. Okay. And then and I was interested to see in the show tonight that Seamus from... The Abracababra episode. Yes. Uh, Sean, is he in the, in the episode? No, oh, you're giving away some of my secrets. That's here. good. That's what it's about. Seamus is not his name. Okay. But Seamus is very funny. Sure. 
to have a Chinese guy called Seamus. Uh, it, you know, out of context, it might seem a bit cheap, but the routine, that routine is an old routine, actually, from the work experience episode, because there was a guy called Sean, and so there was a bit of, there was a bit of fun to be had about the fact that Chinese sure. guys were called Sean. But really, I mean, the, the, the real fun and the interesting thing about that series wasn't so much about the money, it was much more about these guys were literally the first wave of immigrants that Ireland had ever seen. You know, Ireland was now in the middle of this massive boom. Irish people were clearly aware of the fact that Ireland had changed, like, massive mm-hmm. economic revolution, uh, going alongside a cultural revolution. The church was losing its power. Sex abuse scandals had sort of, like, rocked the church. So, like, you know, it's hard. I think sometimes it's hard for British people to realize how much Ireland has changed in the last sort of 25 years. So all these changes were going on, and I just happened to end up in this small shop with these Chinese guys who could hardly speak English, and they were dealing with Irish people, dealing with the fact that they had never had to deal with foreigners before. Yeah. And uh, that because it was such a tight space, and it was late night, and there was a lot of drinking, it was just super intense, which made for, you know... Well, it was a good experiment. It made for good TV, too. And it was really interesting to kind of show that to Irish people and go, hey, people that are loved all over the world, you know, when you go, <laughs> you're not loving the people that are coming here as much as people are, are loving you in other places. And it became very controversial, but it was very interesting to see because it was literally a point in time yeah. f- for in Ireland. And when you were writing material about that, because the format of that show was that the, the camera would follow you around, you'd do pieces to camera in your, in your room that you were renting with the money you were making from the, yeah. the job. Diary and, cams were very hot back then. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was like host big brother. It was like diary cam. So, you know, the, the production company was like, so we're going to do like, you know, in situation and then you're going to have a diary cam. And I remember it's so funny now because we're always filming ourselves now. But at the time I had like a second camera and they had to show me how to use the camera. And then it was like a really big deal to like film yourself and yeah. like, find a good spot and find good lighting. And you know, now everybody's just like diary camming all day, every day. But at the time it was a big deal. And then the final part of it, which was the, the fun, but like, the f- supposed to be the funniest part of the series was me doing stand-up about it. Yeah. So we weren't, we weren't using voiceover. The stand-up was kind of the narrative tool. Yes. And your, your, the stand-up, I remember at the time from that episode, was the, the, some of the really powerful stuff for me was you talking about how Irish people consider that they have the crack. And then this is interspersed with all of the you know, people just being horrifically drunk and obnoxious. To the, to the people who were working in Abracababra. Yeah, it could have been called The Consequences of Crack. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the Consequences of Crack. You know, that would be very like Sky One, you know. Yeah, totally. The Consequences of Crack. Donald McIntyre <laughs> goes, uh, goes and sees what's in the cracks. But uh, so, anyway, th- that, that's, what, that's what made that, sh- that particular episode successful. It actually became a bit of a sort of a, this is what late night life is doing to the people that are serving you the fast food. And, and that was an accident. It wasn't meant to happen. And presumably you knew as a gigging comic at that time, you, you see the worst of people falling over themselves, obnoxious, drunk in clubs. Although obviously you, you'd see it from a position of status. Yeah. So did that change you to see people being that kind of mean to people who had no status? Uh, well, well, yeah. I mean, I was getting annoyed. Uh, like, like actually on the thing you can see I'm, I'm getting annoyed. I don't know if I was that surprised. I mean, there was a lot of material being done by comedians at that time about, you know, Irish people being racist, but it tended to be like a taxi driver said this kind yeah. of a thing, you know? Uh, 
So we knew that there was racism in Irish society. Uh, I guess, I don't know. I, I, I just know that I got annoyed at the time. I wasn't thinking about it so much because it was such an intense atmosphere. Now, I haven't drank since I'm 19. So, and I was a bad boozer before. So I was also looking at it through the eyes of like sober alcoholic guy and just kind of like, just thinking like this is really unhealthy. So, I mean, I was definitely a little judgmental. I think it was good for the TV. Maybe it put some people off, but... You know, I was younger then, too, so I was really happy to tell people my judgments. I'm a bit more <laughs> guarded now, but okay. I was in my 20s then, so I was, pretty, I was pretty open to let off, which I think, I think for the TV was good. I mean, for my, for my well-being, it wasn't great because I had to deal with loads of stress afterwards with angry people. But, I mean, in terms of making good, you know, like, a, you know, well, I was honest. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, I was honest. But I'd say my 39-year-old self would probably tell my 28-year-old self, you know, that honesty is good telly, but, you know, you're going to get some angry people and meeting you, you on the street at 3 in the morning and telling you what they think about yeah. you and Abracababra while they're eating Abracababra. Yeah, <laughs> and, and this, was, this was in Dublin, were you? Just everywhere Dublin? afterwards. It was kind of like a love-hate thing. Like, some people yeah. thought it was the best thing they'd ever seen. And sure. some people, you got to understand, like, Irish people don't see me as Irish. They see me as American. And they didn't know that I'd been living in Ireland since 1990. To them... I was this yank that got off the plane, went to Abercababra and told Irish people they were a bunch of alcoholics. So some people were like pretty angry. I mean, I didn't see myself as that. I've been in Ireland since I'm 14. I saw myself as an Irish guy with an American accent, but had had most of my life experiences in Ireland. Mm. And I was just saying what I felt, you know, but I guess a lot of people were like, who does this guy think he is to come over here and tell us about us? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But then other people were like, well, it takes an outsider to tell us what we're like. You know, so you get, you get sort of like the do-gooder and, and the hater. And it's, and it's great. I mean, that's a great energy for a, a debate. And when you were writing the stand-up portions of that show, were mm. you, how do you write those? Were, were, that, were they kind of uh, like more storytelling stuff about what you got up to? Were you sitting down to write them and assemble ideas? What, what, kind, of, yeah, what uh, kind of writer were you at that time? Well, I mean... Well, I was working with the director, too. The director was, was uh, super, like, immersed as well. Uh, so we were all the time thinking, like, what are the funny things? Uh, some of them were obvious. I mean, I have to say, I kind of forget now almost, sure. like, some of the things we joked about. But, you know, some of them were obvious, kind of like fast food stuff. You know, you could see it, and it was just happening. And that was good, just to keep it ticking along, you know. And then some of the stuff was more difficult about, like, you know, throughout the whole series about how do you make jokes about low wage? How do you make work uh, jokes about, like, the loneliness of being a foreigner in a new city with no money and, you know, no way to socialize? Uh, so, I mean, thinking about it now, a lot of trial and error. I mean, the first, see, it was in two segments because the first one was a pilot. So we made the Abracababra one. And then I think I had about four weeks to, like, mess around with the ideas on stage. So it was just a lot of trial and error. Okay. Doing gigs, you know, like uh, doing gigs on stage and, uh, and just seeing if it, if it would work. I remember being in Armagh. I, I was in Armagh and I tried to do like a load of it. It all bombed. You know, like some of it was tough to joke about. But it, it eventually... You, why, why was the stuff bombing in, in Armagh? What, what just, specifically? Because you well, felt because like you didn't no have the context. license to talk about no, it. There's no context, you know. I mean, a lot of that stuff is funny because it relates to what you're seeing. You know, so it was just really a lot of trial and error, you know, like explaining to people the premise of I went to Waterford for a month and I worked on a minimum wage job and for them to buy into that, for them to believe it. And then to sort of 
talk about those things and you have to set a scene. You know, it was easier later on because I had the footage, but at that time I didn't have the footage, so I had to sort of set a scene, set yeah. it fast enough because it's not like a one-man show sure. in a theater, you know, down you're the back alley of New York City. You're doing it in a comedy club where the, you know, the impetus is on you to make jokes. So mm. it was hard to get it out fast enough. But, but the, that, that cauldron was a good place to develop it because then you find the joke faster. Yeah. You know? And uh, I, 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 had, I, I had actually booked a month in Edinburgh to do the Des Bishop work experience, which I was going to kind of base on that Abracababra experience. But then they commissioned the series, so I had to cancel it. Okay. So I was already, not just for the series, I was already thinking about how many jokes I was going to be able to tell about this experience. Sure, okay. So I, they mostly just stories. I mean, I, I also, by the way, was being told by the director, we really need stuff about that thing that happened. So I was also... So under- part of it is writing to order. Yeah, I had yeah. to write to order because I had to, I, there's no narration. The narration is the stand-up. So the stand-up has to fit the images. And okay. one of the toughest things about that is sometimes the stand-up is just, the punchline is the visual. And when you don't have that, it, it's, it's just not funny. So uh, some of the stuff I really couldn't try. And then you have to perform it, and it's a bit flat when you perform it, but it looks good in, yeah, in a TV sure. show. Sure. But that, some of it's just TV. I mean, you know, like some of that was just TV, the same as like, you know, a presenter is just presenting lines, setting up the image. You know, I mean, TV is kind of unnatural. So some of it was just unnatural. I, I, it seems to me that from those experiences and on work experience and then also on uh, Joy in the Hood, which was, was that after work experience? Yeah, that was yeah. after. So that was taking comedy workshops to the Ballymun estate and uh, giving opportunities to basically people, underprivileged people, some severely underprivileged people on that estate, and giving them the opportunity to do comedy, stand-up comedy workshops with you. And there's, you know, there's footage of you playing trust games with them and working on... Uh, shows with them and I know a couple of them actually went on to become comedians after Mm. that but like through the process like you said um, this is something you said a moment ago about you there there, then becomes a necessity because if you are just a kind of a day-to-day jobbing comic working in Ireland and then this opportunity comes along that you make a name for yourself as a documentarian comedian and then we look down the line and go oh you know you've you then kind of turned that into a speciality you turn that into your field Mm. So I'm just interested in like the two things really. One is the commitment required when, you know, if we think back to the show we've just seen, you actually went and learned Mandarin Chinese. That is, that's like a, that's kind of an absurd amount of commitment, isn't it? Like, I know, just write like, some what the cock, fuck are you going to do Just write next? some cock jokes, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, man. And get a laugh in jungles. What are you doing to yeah. yourself? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, let, let's just talk about that commitment. Like that is an incredible amount of not just you know work experience you're not just going to go and do it for a week and you know see what it's like and bodge a tv show together like four months of living in those environments and then an actual commitment to people to workshopping stand-up comedy with them and then through another of your very successful shows my dad was nearly james bond mining the the life experience that you went through with your your yeah well that's a little step i mean we could talk about that a little bit just just because that sort of steps away from the sort of documentarian sure but just in terms of what you're talking about about the commitment my opinion is because stand-up was always an integral part of it like i'm a stand-up comedian first if you don't commit, then you don't have the experiences and then you don't have anything to write about. So it's not, not that I was so desperate for things to write about, but when you commit to a thing, you want to do the best that you can. And if you're uncommitted, it doesn't happen. 
right? So if you don't really do the job, how do you know what it's like? Now, it's still fake. It's still only a month. You're still going back to your life. That was the joke in episode one, actually. I remember one now, which is like, after this, I know I'm going back to the Panini's, you know, in Dublin 4. It's funny because it's funny how time changed. Like, Panini's then sounded fancy. <laughs> now Panini special. sounds like something you get when you're, like, late for the train. But, you know, back then it was like Panini's yeah. was kind of fresh, particularly in Ireland. And uh, I think the joke I made back then was, in fact, when you're on minimum wage, you don't need anything with the word Nini in it because it just means small, which means bad value. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so basically, if you don't do it for real, then you don't know. And if, if, what can, you can't joke about a thing that you don't know. You, know, you can't write about experience you didn't have. Sure. Right? So in, in the awareness that it was still fake, I tried to make it as real as possible. Plus, the other really important thing in terms of documentary making which I am not an expert on, but my directors, like the guys that I've worked with, they always say trust is a huge element of documentary making. Like you have to get the people to trust you, you know, and people trust you a lot more when they see you really mean it, you know. They also knew that it was temporary. They knew that I was a comedian, but they could see that I was literally working with them every day. There was no special days off. I did the job. I worked on the money. When it was busy, I was on the till. I was just another guy working. And after a while, they just go... This is a guy working with us, mm. and that, that also helps. So the commitment is essential for them to work. I actually detest, like, gimmicky stuff. I mean, sure, I've been accused of that these things are gimmicks in themselves, but, like, I'm talking about a much more gimmicky thing where it's like, oh, he does the toughest job, and then they get the footage they need. And yeah. I've seen it done. Yeah. And I've seen it done pretty effective, and I kind of get annoyed because I think, fuck, I could have done this for like three days. <laughs> Probably could have got a halfway decent series, but one, it wouldn't have felt genuine, but two, definitely, I don't think the stand-up, you know, I don't think the stand-up would happen unless it so happens that one of the guys that's been working that job for real fancies himself as an open mic and decides yeah. to write the material yeah. for you, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you get some pretty genuine stand-up. Des Bishop here, everybody. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this. He's a very intense guy, very intense uh, person to talk to, has made some incredibly intense life decisions, as you'll hear. Um, and uh, we will rattle along right with this. Now, someone of the show, uh, someone very, someone of the show, uh, some friend of the show, the, be- the best friend of the show, someone very dear to me, uh, recently pointed out that whenever I say, right, there's not going to be much more faff now, that's always a code, meaning I'm now going to talk interminably. I promise I'll keep this one very short. I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that came along uh, to the Soho show. To remind you once more, the discount code FAF gets you 25% off your tickets for Nina Conti on the 5th of May at SohoTheatre.com. And also, there you can buy tickets in advance, if you trust me. If you trust me enough, some people do. That's nice to see, uh, to see what the, uh, to just buy tickets blind uh, for the other two Soho Theatre podcasts that we're going to do. Uh, I can't wait to reveal who those guests are um so that's that that's very brief that wasn't quick uh, that that wasn't oh i've given the game away <laughs> it wasn't it, it was quickish but uh, just a couple more bits of bobs uh which are a thank you for all of those that have donated at comedianscomedian.com do feel free a pound a show you can decide however much you'd like to put in a pound for one of your favorite shows perhaps uh, a pound for your top 10 shows for your top 20 or a one-time donation of 20 quid or what have you uh, whatever you think is appropriate thank you for those and if you'd like to see me at a gig and press money in my hand one or two more people have still done that and i was talking last week with the hashtag dirty money uh, if you'd like to join in on twitter at comcompod i was looking for a sort of a thing we could set up much like the i'd love to be introduced 
introduced your beautiful daughter code uh, that we've been using if you'd like to be a guest on the show uh, an equivalent code we were looking for you remember that if you fancy donating to the show but you're not a paypal user uh, and you want to just press a 20 pound note into my hand uh, or whatever a pound a pound coin to pick up a penny and go you dropped this <laughs> you dropped this isn't bad actually as code goes you dropped this but i think given that this is a show about creativity i should leave the creative decisions to you uh, because i have been surprised by the last two uh, one of which was a comedy for kids recently Did a lovely, lovely gig again at Soho Theatre with the Comedy Club for Kids organisation uh, for whom I love working and am uh, just in my element. There's so much fun. If you're a comic and you've not done Comedy Club for Kids, I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Give it a go. You just write so much stuff on stage because an audience of giggling children getting behind you just makes me, certainly I can only speak from my own experience, it makes me ten times more creative and you just, every, all of your act outs get bigger and more expansive and more effusive. Great fun. And a dad at that show came up to me Uh, pressed a fiver into my hand and said get yourself an ice cream which I loved although thinking about it now I'm only assuming he was a fan of the podcast maybe it was just a tip who knows Um, so thank you thank you to him thanks to everyone that's uh, donating in support of the show and uh, that is literally it let's get back and enjoy the rest of this conversation with the brilliant Des Bishop So, so, but I, I still think, and I just want to stay on this for a moment, that idea of commitment. Absolutely, I agree with what you say, but you are the, like, this is the very unusual level of commitment. The, the Des Bishop amount of commitment, even though I completely know where you're coming from. Yeah, you want to put that out there a lot, because I want that to become like a phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just open this bottle. It's been taking me ages, and yeah, I'm really it, worried about it. the sound of me opening it in the mic. It's there totally fine. Thank you. Um, but that is, I mean, that's still an extreme from whether it's a, a week or a month or whatever to going away and learning Chinese. Now, what was it you said at the very beginning of this interview? You said, for reasons we won't go into now. We cannot go into those reasons, if you like. But I Oh, the Chinese l- thing? Yeah. Well, I figured we would be talking about that, like, in a section. Oh, I see. Fine. In a okay. section. I didn't okay. mean, like, during this conversation, we won't sure. get into it. I meant, like, in the China section. I okay. mean, I wasn't editing the show for you in my No, head. no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it was just anyone, I know anyone. No, because you told me today, uh, you emailed me and you were like, oh, I've been going through your stuff. I saw Joy in the Hood. So I was like, oh, here we go. This is your life. Des Bishop coming up <laughs> for the Comedian's Comedian podcast. So I assumed we would do the last thing last. So my apologies if, if I assumed incorrectly. That's perfectly reasonable. I'm just trying to make the point kind of achronologically that the, the commitment required to go and, and get stuck into Mandarin Chinese or whatever it is, or learn to play the drums, which you did for a show as yeah, well. Yeah, that was just whatever. Okay. That was, a, that, was, that was after a show about my father dying sure. and before a show about me learning Chinese. Des Bishop that was likes the year the off drum show. I was genuinely learning the drums, and I just thought this would be funny, but it wasn't really like a commitment to learn the drums. Okay. It was just like I thought there was some funny shit going on while I was learning the drums, and I love hip-hop, and I just wanted an excuse to do a bit of a sort of a musical comedy show. Okay. You know, to be honest. Did but you, I don't play any that, instruments. Did you find that people judged that show on the basis of he's just done the big dad's death show, there better be some serious drumming in this? Do you know what I mean? Was that like? A, was that because like, I felt I read some of the reviews of that, and I felt like they were a bit like he just he doesn't even really get that into the drumming. And you sort of feel like have you kind of almost created a bit of a prison for yourself by the commitment? Does then do then you have to commit to everything to that extent? Otherwise, well, I think that was more of a case. That's more of a case of like you send out. So Melbourne was the first run of that, right? So you send out these descriptions like five, six months in advance. Right, so I think the show is going to be about like me learning to play the drums and you know things that you know. I just thought there'd be some stuff in it, and there wasn't. The show was fine, but it was just a funny show with 
basically it was a musical comedy show, particularly in Melbourne. It was a bit incomplete, but you get tied into then this is like an, an, a documentary type show, which it wasn't. It was just like a stand-up show. Sure. So maybe sometimes because I've done these other shows, people go like, this is just fucking stand-up. Who does this guy think he is? <laughs> so, I don't know. A stand-up comedian, maybe. Is that, well, is that right? Does, does that happen? Do you find uh, maybe that you have that, to... Maybe in that case. Maybe in that case. But, but, you know, that was just a few reviews, you know? Like, later on in Edinburgh, that wasn't as much of a thing because the show had evolved. But, like, Chortle, he saw it really early on, like he had... You know, I never read that review, but I knew it was, like, only all right. But, you know, like, that's fine, too. I mean, that was really early days of that show. So, you know, they can, they can say what they want. I don't really think... I was the only problem with that show. It was more about the fact that my dad was Neil James Bond. Was the first show that really did well outside of Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, before that, it was always just like, well, he's really well known in Ireland and he's quite funny. But it never had really kicked off. But my dad was Neil James Bond, totally kicked off. You know, like in a big way. So then suddenly, I was being sort of compared to that other show that I did, which is just ridiculous because I did not set out to write a show about my father dying. My father just happened to be dying. So uh, for a load of reasons, I did that show. And that was a special moment in time, and it was great. But it was, it, I was not trying to live up to that after sure. that. You know, that was just a very special moment in time. So it was just unfortunate that some people would sort of compare it. But even for myself, I deliberately did the most lighthearted thing because that shit was super intense. And I toured that show after my father died for ages about my dad. So... I didn't realize it at the time, but when I stepped away from it, I was like, like, it was so intense. I actually delayed my next shows in Ireland. Like, I was supposed to start touring again pretty quick, and I just had to delay them because I was just like, whoa, that is not like what a human being should be doing around grief. Grief is like a real thing. So yeah. I had to like go and grieve. So in, in that sort of grieving period, I was like, I tell you, the next thing I'm doing is about nothing. About fucking banging shit. <laughs> Literally. It sounds like the right antidote. Yeah, so, so that's what I did. Something that, that uh, guests on this show have said to me before is about when you make a show that's about a real thing that's happened to you, you need to be making that after the thing has finished happening. And from what you... Do you know what I mean? So that you can get some perspective on it and you're not actually... Like, you can't make a breakup show whilst you're in the middle of that breakup. From what you've said there about you, the My Dad Was Nearly James Bond show... Obviously, that show existed whilst your father was still alive. Mm. And then you had to go through his death during the, the running of that show. Mm. So what effect did that have on the... On the, the I mean, what effect did that have on, on you on stage? What effect did that have on the, the material? Do, over the life of that show, how did it change over the, the end of your dad's life? Well, let, let's... Well, I'll just backtrack and talk a little bit about how my dad, nearly James Bond, came about. How my dad was nearly. Feel James free to continue editing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally cool. <laughs> so, so uh, oh, it's funny. You're very like Irish people. It gets a bit emotional, and you need to kill it with a joke. I like that. That's good. I, 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 I am the same. I am the same. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, but I always, I always criticize myself when I do that. Like it gets a little tense, and then you come in with the joke, and it's like a really good time for a joke. So. My dad was nearly James Bond. It was actually a title that I had had for years before my dad got sick. It actually had nothing to do with my dad being sick. It was the headline of an article that my father said was written about him, the Irish man that was nearly James Bond, way back when Lazenby got the, the James Bond part. And my cousins in Middleton, who kind of raised my father in Cork, my father had a bit of an odd life. He was sort of back and forth between uh, uh, Sussex and Middleton County Cork. And he was kind of raised by his uncles in Cork. But every time I would go to visit them, they would say, 
there was an article about the fact that your dad was nearly James Bond, but I could never find it, you know? And my father had said that it was written by this Irish actor. And, you know, over the years, that was like a big thing in our house about the fact that my dad had an audition for Bond when Lazenby got it. And my father always talks about the play that he was doing, Sive, around the corner in the West End. Uh, it was like a London amateur drama society, society that was doing a, a John B. Keane play. And Broccoli, the producers of James Bond, came to see my dad. But I could never corroborate the story. And then as I started to talk about more serious stuff on stage, I thought I could do a, great, I could do a show about my dad nearly being James Bond, but he gave up acting for us, right? So he sacrificed his performance life to give us a stable life because he thought acting was too unstable, but always regretted it and sort of passed on those regrets to us. And then later on, I found out his actual childhood was horrific, right? Like really, really horrific. So much so that his mother was sent to prison and it was in the papers. And he told me when I was much older that, you know, about the papers and the headlines and the, you know, just like the horrible stuff that he went through as a kid and the foster homes. And I thought, my God, how can this guy be ashamed of what he achieved as an actor and a father when he lived through real horror? James Bond is fake. There's a cut, you know? There's an action. There's a cut. My father actually survived, like, horrific shit. So I wanted to write, like, not a stand-up show, to be honest, like a straight-up sort of more like one-man, traditional one-man show, serious, funny, altogether, called My Dad Was Nearly James Bond. But I could never sort of marry the seriousness and the thing, or, or maybe even just didn't have the time. And I, from time to time, I would talk to my dad about it, and he was trying to write a memoir. So it was always collaborative, you know? And then it never happened. And then my dad got sick. He got lung cancer, incurable, you know, fatal. But he was really funny. And he was telling some really funny stories. And I started telling those stories on stage. I wasn't thinking about my dad was nearly James Bond. I was just telling, same as when I had testicular cancer, I was telling my dad's, I find out I'm going to die stories. And they were really funny and they're really powerful because we're all going to die. So it's worth thinking about, you know? It's like, we're all, like, if you can joke about all those other things, why wouldn't you joke about that inevitability? And then one day I was like talking to my father and I was like, yo, man, we should just do My Dad Was Nearly James Bond. And I wrote it, that's when I wrote it down. I was like, this is it. It's about a guy that gave up acting for us, sacrificed all that, and now he's on his last breath and I'm going to turn him into a hero, you know? So I went to Melbourne without my father and I was trying to work it out. And I can tell you, there were some tough nights the first week of that. You know, it didn't always come together. In fact, I still have the email that was sent to Susan Proven from the Melbourne Comedy Festival from this guy that was like, I am not a fucking psychiatrist. I am not here to listen to someone dealing with their fucking shit on stage. If I buy a ticket to a comedy show, I want to fucking laugh. I don't want to deal with somebody who's got fucking issues with his father. It was like the most angry email you that ever... Because stu- I've, I've heard in that show and in subsequent shows, there are often moments where you personify the audience having an opinion similar to that. And I think you did it tonight as well. Like, oh, God, now you're thinking, oh, he's going to teach oh, yeah. us a lot of Chinese. Yeah. That's, it's interesting so that, that you've kind of incorporated happen. that, yeah. But that was really only the first week. I really did figure it out in about a week. I had a little bit of footage, but not a lot. And uh, then somewhere along the line, I don't know when, uh, I was walking in Melbourne with Jason Byrne, and I was saying, like, oh, you know what would be great, man? Like, if... I, I can't remember if he said it or if I said it. Let me give him credit today for the crack because <laughs> it's impossible to know. But I know that I was trying to think of like funny things to do with filming my dad on a green screen. 
you know, some James Bond jokes. And maybe Jason said it, maybe I, but he said, how fucking great would it be if your father came to Edinburgh and just fucking walked out at the end? You know, that was like... So then I started saying that on stage Mm -hmm. in Melbourne, that this is what we're going to do. And funnily enough, Chortle, Steve Bennett came, (laughs) and... uh, he had said in the review, and it's terrible because comedians always say they don't read the reviews yeah, and it doesn't say. affect them. But I did read this review. Yep. And it was a good review. But he said, if he does what he says he's going to do, this will turn out to be a really special show. Right? Now, it wasn't, I can tell you, it wasn't Steve Bennett that made me think I'm definitely going to do it. But I was definitely seeing that there was something really brewing here. So, so I said to my dad, I was like, yo. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This night, I always say yo to my father. I was like, yo. Uh, <laughs> Your dad's English accent on the uh, thing is a real surprise, given the, yeah, the he's way he's very yeah. He has a very nice <laughs> accent. Saying yo so he, uh, I was like, yo, man, like, the show is going well. And he was so happy because, like, see, he felt he was in on this. Regardless of coming to Edinburgh, he was like, I'm giving Des something. This is like a big deal because my father had a lot of fears for my career, you know, because he, I mean, he was projecting his stuff onto me, but he definitely feared that. You know, it will go tits up for me too, you know? So he, uh, I said, okay, if you're well, would you be into coming to Edinburgh? And he was like, straight away, yeah, right? So in the meantime, we decided to turn it into a documentary. But anyway, that's just what we do. <laughs> so my, the, the direct, the, a guy that I'd worked with on the Irish language thing uh, said he would be into it. I didn't want to do it except for him. And then all of a sudden, we're in, like, full-fledged performance mode. And my father couldn't be happier. Like, he's absolutely over the moon about the fact that he is now the star of the show. 
I won't get into all the drama, but he had a couple of setbacks and it looked like it wasn't happening. And I kept saying to him, I was like, dad, you got to understand, bro. You cannot come to Edinburgh because you feel obligated. Like you have to do this for me. You have to do this for you. And if you're not well, it's okay. Right. You know, like this is just, if you can do it, but he was like, there was no way he wasn't going. We filmed the green screen stuff and he came to Edinburgh. And I mean, the show was, was a great show because, you know, like my dad's life was a really interesting life. I mean, literally, the show is his life, and his, his life was super interesting. But the him walking out thing, which, except for one, you know, one guy called it a gimmick, uh, he said it was inappropriate, actually. He happened to be on the Perrier Committee that year or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, but, you know, for everybody that was there that had, you know, like a heart. Um, <laughs> there was something really powerful about him walking out because he was literally going to die. He had been holding on to so much bullshit about what he hadn't achieved in his life. And it was a real thing. It wasn't small. I didn't want to write this show for years because my father had like a passing sort of passing remark every now and then about how exciting it was in Chelsea in the 60s. I mean, he really felt unfulfilled. You know, and you can't you can't give a man fulfillment by getting him to walk out on stage. But I'm telling you right now, like that will go down as like one of the top moments of his life, like my life, too. But like that you can have that before you die. That's like a big deal. That documentary and the specifically and I don't want to give away sort of any sort of details. He dies. (laughs) He dies in the end. (laughs) He does die at the end. But him talking to the camera crew backstage to the director oh, backstage yeah. during that bit is so enormously affecting i'm only asking this because you brought it up but that negative that guy that called it a gimmick how did that make you feel to have that something that is clearly such so important to you described as a gimmick all right let me let me let me be really honest and blow this thing that comedians don't give a fuck about what reviewers say out of the water We'd already had a five-star from The Guardian. No, I don't give a fuck about reviews, but <laughs> a five-star in The Guardian. Like, let me just tell you, because, you know, I remember exactly where I was. I went shopping with my mother. So my whole family came over, right? And I'm living with my mother and father. So I'm shopping in the Tesco at the bottom of Broughton, you know, like yeah. down towards the Botanical Gardens in, in Edinburgh. And I knew The Guardian had been in, and they were in on the best night. And Daniel Kitson was in, too. Like, all the things comedians like to say they don't care about. I gave a fuck what Daniel Kitson thought about the show. I really cared. And I was really happy that it was the best show that he was in and The Guardian were in. I was really happy. It just totally came together that night. And, uh, but it was only two days later. I was not expecting the review to be out. So I grabbed The Guardian because I read The Guardian every day anyway because that's the type of person I am and because my mother was shopping. And I was not shopping with her. I was just letting her do it. So I was sitting in the car. So I went to get the Guardian to sit in the car. And I opened it. And I was just like, wasn't even looking for the fucking reviews. And then it was just like, boom, like fucking five stars. Who gets five stars in the fucking Guardian? You know, like, because I remember the pajama men got five stars the year before. And I bought them a bottle of champagne because they were on before me. And, I, and when they came back stage afterwards and I was on after them, I said, oh, how's it going? You have a good day? And they were like, fine. And then I was like, we got a good review. I was like, damn right, you got a fucking good review. And I, I gave him a fucking bottle of champagne. I was like, you got five stars in the fucking Guardian. That's what you got, man. You got five stars in the Guardian. That's a big fucking deal. And then, all, you know, like, I, I got it. So, like, I'll admit it. I was fucking over the moon, man. And uh, so I ran into my mother. I was like, we got five stars in the Guardian. And I showed my father. He's like, you got five stars in the Guardian. And then my, months later, 
a guy rang my father and was like, a friend of his from Sussex. And he's like, is that your son got five fighting stars in the garden? Like, <laughs> so my dad was like, you know, like it was a big deal, right? So we, we already knew that the show was, was really kicking. And then like two days later, or no, it must have been the next week because it was the Sunday Times. There was a review and it was like he was using the theme that there was a lot of shows about fathers that year, which kind of happens sometimes. You mm-hmm. get this weird thing where there's a lot of shows. So Russell Kane had a great show. Uh, he got a great review off this guy. And then uh, there was a few others. And then, then there was mine, two stars, right? So I'm like, fucking hell. Like, but I don't care if I get a shit review, right? If the guy doesn't like the show, fine. But here's the thing. He praises the show, right? And then he goes, talks about how it's a great show. And then he says, but here's the difficult part. And the fact that I'm going to quote it word for word. <laughs> I was too might give away, to Might that. give away the fact that, yes, this review did affect me. Here's the difficult part. This show would have got at least three stars, except for the surprise ending, which I found inappropriate. So he punished me for bringing my dying father out on the stage. And how did and that used, make you feel? used a really interesting word, inappropriate. Go how on. did it make me feel? Well, the jokey answer would be, it made me feel that this guy probably had a tough relationship with his father. <laughs> but it, I was just fucking angry because I was just like, don't fucking punish me. Give me two stars because you don't like the show. Don't fucking say, well, if he hadn't brought out his fucking dying father, if he hadn't been having one of the best experiences of his life, I would have thought the show was amazing. You know? Like, I basically just thought, all the people that are standing up around you, you know, like, all the people that are standing up every night thinking this is like a fucking great experience is inappropriate, fine. That's absolutely fine. But don't write it that way. Don't fucking punish me. You know, like, write that you didn't like the show. You know? Don't use the word inappropriate because what's fucking appropriate? That's a moral judgment. It's a fucking stand-up comedy show. Like, save your moral judgments for, you know, like, morality. You know, this is not like a morality issue. It's just like a moment, you know? So I was just, I was, I was angry, I have to say. And I've never met that guy since. But I've never met him in my life. <laughs> That's, but I, I was I, a fascinatingly I, threatening dot, dot, dot. No, no, no. <laughs> but, no, I mean, of course I had, of course I had fantasies. But, uh, no, but the thing was that we, you know, like there was just, anyway, I won't say any more because I'll probably get myself in trouble. But I was saying more. I, I, no, 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 I can't. I can't because it could be libelous. Sure. But uh, I, 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 I was, I, I was angry. But that was the only, that was the only bad review. Is that is that an accusation that has ever been leveled at you before or since about the nature of the the documentary nature of your shows about whether or not they could be construed as gimmicky? Like you know, he's going to he's going to go to China and and learn Mandarin for a year. Did, do you ever, are you ever concerned that other comics or reviewers will be thinking, oh, fucking course he is. That's what Des does. Not really. You know, and funnily enough, the very little public, you know, like people can say what they want, like online, like, you know, people like, like you know, the haters, the haters going to hate. But, you know, like people who have to sort of stand by what they write have very rarely been critical of that side of it because the commitment is clearly there. Yeah. So that usually gets me past that. You know, I've had very few people sort of come out and say, this is just a gimmick. You know, maybe in advance they might think, is this not just a gimmick? But the results tend to show that you get something out of it. You know, that's what I'd like to think. I'd like to think that the commitment reaps results. And the results are, well, one, that it's funny. Two, that it's informative. And, well, that's it. Funny and informative, <laughs> which I think is a pretty good, you and, know, it's a, and that's pretty good. 
And what is it that drives you? I mean, I understand that... Money. That, yeah. Well. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Positive byproduct. <laughs> what is it that drives you to put so much effort into something like this? Because this, this kind of puts... Like, certainly the, 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 the Mandarin aspect of it puts you in the same bracket as someone like Eddie Izzard. Obviously, that comparison has been made before. And the fact that he's going learning different languages in order to do shows that. And I, I, I don't know Eddie Izzard. I've never met him. But my feeling is probably if he's pushing himself that hard to learn eight different languages and run 50 marathons over 50 days whatever it was i i guess i mean you know i'm i'm not a real armchair psychologist but that sort of suggests that he's maybe driving himself incredibly hard for a reason now is that true of you have you got something that is driving you so much harder than anyone else to commit so much more than any other comic I don't know. I mean, if you want to get like deep into it, I would say that possibly some of my life experiences make it easier for me to not think of it as much as a much of a commitment as other people think. How do you mean? Well, like I, I, I left home when I was 14. I went to boarding school in a country 3000 miles away, left my, my family and like had to adapt to Ireland after being brought up in Queens, New York, you know, and had to adapt to a rural boarding school. So, you know, I've, I, I learned to adapt to situations and kind of like enjoyed it, found it kind of inspiring, then went to a different boarding school in, in 93 and had to adapt again to like Dublin, but all the time without my parents. I had to live in like my cousin's house and friends and family's house, so I always had to kind of adapt and I kind of enjoyed it. So the fact that I'm still putting myself into situations where I need to adapt and I get a kick out of it really to me says that it's not as much of a commitment as people think. It's actually something that I enjoy. So I don't really think of it in terms of, like, the, the, the drive that you're talking about. But, like, in terms of the comparison with Eddie Izzard, there's a big difference between, say, what I did with the Irish language. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but the idea for learning language came from originally learning the Irish language, which was something I did in 2007, and then kind of liking wanting to tell a story about China and thinking this would be a great way to tell it. But they both came from genuine desires of mine to connect, well, with the Irish language, I wanted to learn Irish and I wanted to, like, get deeper into, like, the Irish psyche or, like, deeper into Irish culture. Uh, but also the China thing was something that had been building up for years. It wasn't really about learning Chinese. It wasn't about the gimmick of being able to do stand-up comedy in Chinese. It was about wanting to find a way to do an interesting thing about China because I wanted to do it before I did the Irish thing, but I didn't want to learn Chinese. I just thought wouldn't it be interesting to do something about China? In fact, we nearly did something with RTE with Leo, which is his actual name, mm-hmm. not Seamus. Uh, we nearly did something with Leo, like let's follow Des going to China with Leo, so to speak. Okay. You know, so th- there was, it, that was a real thing. Now, people say to me, what's your next language? I don't have a next language because I don't want to, you know... Uh, you know <laughs> you sounded like you were saying, I don't want to do that to myself again. No, well, well, there's that too, but like... You know, I just don't want to just do... Like, I nearly... When, when, when It took five years to get the money to go to China. And I, I came to the UK looking for maybe somebody else to, to fund it. And somebody in the UK said, well, I think Indian... I think learning an Indian language might be better for the UK. And I pitched that. But I, always in the back of my mind, it's like, well, that's not really what I wanted to do. I mean, India would be really interesting, but this is really a China project. And it didn't happen. And, but I was always uncomfortable with that anyway. And now people say, what are you going to do next? You're going to do Arabic? You're going to do Russian? And 
those would be the two that I would do because I think they'd be interesting, but that would be the first time I would be doing it literally to make a TV show, you know? And so I, 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 would, I, I don't think I would do it. I, don't, I think I would, get, I would move on from it, you know? Mm. I, w- I, I don't think I would stay mentally, like, in the place. I would be thinking, I'm just making a TV show. When you wrote the material that you went, did you, went, did you write in Chinese when you were writing material? When oh. you wrote the stand-up material? Because one of the first things I saw of yours was a, a, a clip of you, you know, Des Bishop smashes it on Chinese TV, and it's incredible watching... Yeah, but that's very recent. Yeah. That was, like, I have two years of Chinese doing that. Yeah. Yeah. How many years do you have now? Three? No, that was, Three. That was like, last month. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah. Okay. So... When you're writing that material, are you thinking in Chinese when you're writing it? How is that different to... Are you writing a routine in English and then translating it? Nah. Tr- very rarely does the translation work because... Well, for me, because the references are off. Sometimes the grammar's off, but not as much as people like to think. Uh, often the subject matter is inappropriate. You like said in me- the show tonight... You said, oh, go on, don't, let, don't let me interrupt you. Well, I have a joke. I have a joke in the show. The quick version of the joke, I mean, I hate telling jokes in this context, but the quick version of the joke is I have a problem with intimacy. One of the, one of the symptoms is I think about other women during sex. People say that's normal, but I'm chronic. I think about ex-girlfriends when I'm with my current girlfriend, which is weird because I'm thinking about a woman who when I was with them, I wasn't with them, which shows I have a problem with being present in the open moment. So a few years ago, I was with a girl who'd done a lot of therapy. She said, one day we're in the middle of it. She says, you're thinking about somebody else. I can tell you're thinking about somebody else. I just wanted to say, relax, your time will come. Right? Yeah. Just a stupid little joke. I tried to translate into Chinese because it's very much like a kind of setup reveal joke, right? Couldn't translate, your time will come. No way. Yeah, because you but don't this, realize it's at an the idiot, time. Isn't it? And it's loaded. It's yes. loaded. Your time will come doesn't just mean in the future you will have an opportunity. It's something you say to like a kid who just got second place. Like, don't worry, kid, your time will come. Or, yes. you know, like, you know, like keep studying, your time will come. You know, there's like a sense of hope and this, you know, like it's just a loaded statement, which you don't realize when you say your time will come. You know? Sure. There's so and much there's mean. no directly no. translatable there's idiom. Like, there's like a sentence, like in the future, you know, don't worry, in the future, your time will come. You know, there's just like no, no punchline. But here's the thing. I tried... Funny enough, Eddie Izzard gave me the solution, right? But I tried to uh, do it before I got the Eddie Izzard solution. And uh, the problem wasn't the punchline. The problem was I couldn't even get to the punchline because the fact that I was talking about all these casual relationships I had had without getting married was freaking the fucking Chinese out. Because <laughs> they were thinking, like, why have so many relationships? You can't commit. What's your problem? So they were really uncomfortable okay. with the concept of this much casual sex. Yes. It's just um, not very... So you've got translation issues, you've got idiomatic issues, you've got social issues. So what is, can you give us an example of something, that an idea you had for a joke in Chinese that did work straight off the bat, and why? Well, I, my name, the Bi Han yeah. Shou, so there's a joke on the tones of my name. My, my last name is Bi, fourth tone uh, in Chinese. But Bi, first tone, means cunt. Uh, which is, that's a fact. That's not a joke. That's just a fact. But, uh, but it was a genuine thing that I discovered. Like sure. two months after I'd been using that name for two months. <laughs> and uh, it was a French guy, totally true, that told me in the university, like, I notice sometimes you're saying B, which means cunt. Uh, and I, so very early on, before I could speak Chinese, I thought that I would get some jokes out of that. And uh, when I did finally start speaking Chinese and when I first started doing gigs, that was one of the first routines that I sort of, you know, worked out. 
And after a few goes, I found a number of xiaodian. Xiaodian directly translates as laughing point. And okay. it's, it's what the Chinese call a punchline. Punch line. Okay. So they call it the laughing point. So mathematically, I discovered how many laughing points were in this routine, and, uh, which is not true. It's bullshit, but it, it's funny because they're not thinking laughing point, but that's an example of like a translation joke, but that's, that's a translation back to English, which we, we can think is funny, but that doesn't work okay. when you translate it back yes. to Chinese because they just go like, is Xiaodi and his laughing point. But and it does, know, you know, it's not loaded like that. I know from uh, from a, a kind of a, a an offhand comment you made uh, uh, in the show. You said, uh, which I'm, I don't know if it's sort of written is something you say every night. But when you were talking about uh, the the uh, the symbols and wood and man and that bit, I'm just describing this very badly because I'm. Uh, but you've you've got the four different Chinese uh, yeah. pictures on stage. But I don't think pictures. Characters. Are characters. Thank That's you. That's the word. The four different characters uh, on a screen, and you're explaining the the difference between them and the errors in translation you can yes. make. And you said something about because uh, you made the Chinese people laugh, and you said that's not a joke I can translate because it's going to seem racist. Yes. Because it doesn't cause, because the spirit of it doesn't translate. Can you tell us what that was? No, because it's racist. So, <laughs> so tell us why. Well, no. no. <laughs> No, I mean it's it's not terribly racist and it's a bit cheap, but it's uh, it's really not a joke. I actually do that much in Chinese, anyway. Uh, but it just works in the context of of the English language show. But it does get a good laugh in China. But I'm not entirely comfortable with the laugh. Okay. In that you know it's it's a cock joke, and okay. uh, so you can you can figure it out for yourself. Yeah, I thought I probably had. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, you know, it's more about the English show. But my, my teacher did genuinely give me that joke. But the great thing about that routine is when I'm doing like a longer set, which I don't often get an opportunity to do, and I have the slides, because I don't often get a chance to perform in Chinese with the PowerPoint. But when I do have the PowerPoint, I have a lot of routine. I have a lot of jokes about characters. And when it slots in there, it, it, it slots in quite nice. Okay. But that's very rare. And is there, when you say it's not a joke that you're comfortable making, are there kind of, is the, is the quality control well, of your act? No, but the, here's the thing, right? It's very hard to compare the two industries because literally stand-up has just started there. So, like, you can get away with some super hack stuff in Chinese. <laughs> and, 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 and Thank be, you for and being honest Be a legend. <laughs> be a legend. Okay. You know? All right, let's fa- all right, let's just call a spade a spade. There haven't been that many jokes about the size of a black man's penis in China. That's basically what you want me to say, right? So the fact that that's a huge laugh in China is like something that's kind of like hard to sort of, you know, like work around, but they, they've never heard those jokes before. I, I basically have a very limited amount of things that I could talk about due to language limitations. Sure. I'm not like doing what Eddie Izzard does, by the way, because Eddie Izzard kind of translates a lot of his stuff and he well he, you know he gets some help in the translation of it but it's really about doing his show in another language but what i'm trying to do is in as best i can do what i do in chinese but i'm trying to talk about my experiences in china right and some of those experiences are what it was like for me to learn chinese characters and then at the end of that there's a quite a convenient little punchline that gets a good laugh in china and yeah I've said it from time to time, but no, I'm not as uncomfortable as I might seem right now because they're all Chinese and they couldn't give a fuck. Um, we, we will have, uh, we've got about 10 minutes left. If there's, uh, I'd like to give the audience an opportunity to ask some questions. 
joke. So we're talking about the rhythm and how different the rhythm is of a joke when you, you know, are you stressing you different? I mean, presumably you are, you, the stress is completely different. Yeah, well, actually, one of the Chinese comedians, Tony Cho, is great. He does it in English and in Chinese. He feels that Chinese is not a great language for stand-up because you have to be so distinct with your pronunciation. Now, I don't totally buy that. I think that actually the, more of the problem is that they're just not as comfortable saying things when they say them in Chinese. They actually feel a lot of freedom when they speak in English. So I think actually what Tony might be feeling more of is the fact that he's not as comfortable talking about a lot of the stuff he talks about when he talks about okay. it in Chinese. For me personally, I was surprised at how like myself I ended up being speaking Chinese. Now I have to say I'm a lot sillier in Chinese and I, 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 you know, I, I am the foreigner speaking bad Chinese, telling jokes, and I'm not afraid to be that guy for now. But I, I, I am surprised at how much I still have a kind of like slightly sort of fast speaking, you know, kind of like, I guess, in your face. But what, like, I don't even like that term. But, you know, like a bit of the New York vibe comes out when I'm speaking Chinese. But that has played to my advantage. Uh, I think my crap Chinese actually plays to my advantage because probably <laughs> if I did worry about my pronunciation more, I'd be less like myself. But just on what I said just before, I was, I was dating this girl in my first year in China. And she could speak English. And sometimes we would um, send dirty text messages to each other. We would sext in English. But as my Chinese got better, one time I tried to sext her in Chinese. And she told me that she couldn't sext me in Chinese because when she sexts in Chinese, she feels uncomfortable. Like she wow, felt, okay. Like when she yeah. sexts in Chinese, she feels dirty. But it's okay to sext in English. She's comfortable in English, yeah. She That's feels incredible. liberated to say dirty things in English, but not comfortable in Chinese. So that's what I think, and I could be wrong, that maybe sometimes the Chinese comedians who started in English and then start doing it in Chinese, because most Chinese guys think it won't work in Chinese, which they've all been proven wrong, because it is working. Mm -hmm. But literally, it just started. And when I first went there two years ago, it wasn't half as developed as it is now. And loads of them said it won't work in Chinese. It's not the Chinese sense of humor. The Chinese language doesn't suit stand-up comedy. And, and they, were, they were totally wrong. But a lot of it is they get used to the freedom of speaking in English. So are you, you must be kind of in at, uh, in at the ground floor on, on learning the new... I mean, presumably there will, there will become as many kind of... Not exactly rules, but like rules of thumb. You know things in, like in English you'd say put, a good rule of thumb is to put the funniest word at the end of the sentence. You know, joke yeah, but writing, people always kind of think that's the thing. Like that. People always think that's the thing that's going to get thrown, that the grammar is going to mean that you have to put the word somewhere else. But actually, that didn't come up so much for me. Sure. But what I was going to ask was, are there, do you feel any equivalent rules developing? Well, they like, study. I mean, they study, okay? Like, so they think that, they keep asking me, like, where did you study stand-up? And I was okay. like, I fucking studied stand-up on stage. You know, there's no fucking school, you know? But they, the, the Chinese really think that you need to study, you know? They think you need to really work hard, and they think you kind of need to suffer. They're actually worse than Catholics in that way. That's what, <laughs> that's what it, they really are. Like, they really... They, I'll give an example. In the early days of the, of the gigs that I was doing with this club, Beijing Toko Siu Julabu, Beijing Stand Up... After every gig, they would stand around in a circle and criticize each other. And these, wow. guys are like, these guys are like revolutionaries, groundbreaking, doing stand-up in China for the first time. The whole world thinks it won't work there. The whole world thinks China does not suit stand-up comedy. They're doing it. They're doing these gigs in bars. They've, 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 they've found the audience themselves. Like it's, 
It's amazing. And then afterwards, they all talk about how fucking shit they did. Yeah. And like, even if a guy did well, they will still look for the, the critical point. Peeping yes. to our, <laughs> yeah. a circle, I was like going to say... German, is that what you said? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neil says it sounds like Germany. I was thinking, yeah, I can think of some British dressing rooms that are similar yeah. to that. So, uh, so anyway, uh, they, they have found all the, like, how did you stand up books and translated them into Chinese. Oh and they are God. now studying uh, joke writing and studying technique. And uh, it's really funny to hear them be like, speak in Chinese. So they'd be like, ah, oh, Wow. <laughs> your callback. Because they don't have like a callback word. So yeah. they callback, like they all know callbacks now. They're all, they're all using callbacks. They've studied callbacks. So there's callbacks all over the place in Chinese comedy now. <laughs> I, I have some. It was that Eddie Izzo gave me, that, that was the solution yeah. he gave me. He gave me a callback solution. He said, why don't you at the beginning talk about the fact that there's no translation for your time will come. Do a bit of interaction with the crowd. Find out what your time will come means in Chinese, right? Just to have a bit of interaction. Then drop it. Then, you know, 10 minutes later when you do that routine, you get to the punchline and you go, your time will come. Boom, call back. Great. So Thank you, Eddie Izzard. That's a way round the yeah. idiomatic If they only issues. fucking knew who Eddie Izzard was, I could then say afterwards, who gave me the call back? So this is a question about, thank you, uh, this is a question about censorship, which as you talked about in the show, you did in fact have to yeah. submit your topics and you weren't allowed to talk about certain subjects. Yeah. So you, the... The lovely man with the lovely question was saying that, you know, when bands go to China, they have to submit the lyrics for the songs. So to do official gigs, all gigs, you have to apply to the censor, to the culture bureau. Um, But most of the time we don't. We just do small gigs like in bars. And the free ones, like the open mics, it's kind of gray whether it's even a performance. Like they say it's a a hordon, like an event, and it's an invited audience. So that kind of gets you around that. I've even done that once in an official venue, but they said if this is just a huodong, we don't have to. Okay. We don't have to apply to the bureau, okay. right? So there's that gray area, but you can't charge. Once you're charging for tickets, you're supposed to apply to the censor, but we don't. And so far, so good. Like the, just that one gig I mentioned in the show got shut down, but that was like a special occasion, very much like a, a like a, a unique period of time in a unique place. So, uh, but I did do. I opened up for Joe Wang. So Joe Wang is this um, Chinese guy that lived in America, but he's from China, and he got into stand-up to better his English. Actually ended up getting quite successful. Did Letterman like three times, did Ellen, and then he roasted Joe Biden at the vice presidential correspondence dinner, which went hugely viral in China because if a Chinese guy with broken English is ripping on the second most powerful man in the world, that is a serious face situation for the Chinese. Okay. Like, fuck America. <laughs> you know, this is like really, really, really good stuff. So anyway, Joe has now moved back to China. He has a TV show on CCTV2. And uh, it's uh, CCTV is their national broadcaster, by the way. If you've never heard that before, it's a joke in itself. If you've heard it, you've already heard the joke. But anyway, uh, he's quite famous in China. So he's like the only famous actual stand-up that knows what he's doing in China. And so he asked me to open up for him last year. I was only, doing, I was only studying Chinese 10 and a half months. Uh, but that was an official gig, and that was Shen Pi is the Shen Pi is the Chinese word for applying to the censor. Uh, but they had already Shen Pied. But because I was only doing ten minutes, they said we won't send in your stuff. But I had to send it to them, so they would make a call. So I have this joke about the character I, which is for, for love. And uh, in traditional Chinese, which is what they still use in Hong Kong and Taiwan, particularly. 
there's a character within the character, and that character is for, for the heart. So that's like a good character for love. But the, the simplified character has no heart. It just has the character for friendship. So I make the joke that, you know, modern Chinese love in the mainland has no heart. It's just friendship. That's shit. But then I say, actually, marriage in China nowadays is so much about money. We need a new character for love. And in, where the heart used to be, I put a dollar sign, right? And it's just a visual joke, and it gets a good laugh. It's actually my teacher gave it to me, a different teacher. It was a good way of, you know, just understanding characters and how different radicals change the meaning, right? So then uh, that's a great, that always worked, that joke. And that's part of what I was saying about more character jokes. They told me I couldn't do that joke because they still use the traditional characters in Taiwan, and you can't say the Taiwanese characters are better than the mainland characters. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, that's... Censorship a lot of the time is just ridiculous. When you, when you, mentioned, you mentioned a couple of times the concept of face, is, is there a clash between your status as a stand-up comic? And I think it's a, a trope of stand-up that we often play being a loser or having yeah, problems. self-deprecation. Self-deprecation, absolutely. Is there a clash between that and requiring face on stage? Yeah, well, that, it hasn't turned out to be as much of a clash as people thought, but certainly in the beginning, people were saying that's going to be a problem, that stand-up comedy. Well, first of all, self-deprecation doesn't, doesn't wash in China because people like face. And then secondly, the other big face situation everybody was worried about was that if you rip on the guy in the front row, that he'll lose face and he won't be comfortable with that, you know, because Chinese people get very angry when they lose face. To a large extent, it hasn't been the case because, first of all, it tends to be younger Chinese that like stand-up comedy, and they're not as worried about face as the generation before them. Uh, Secondly, even the self-deprecating comedian is getting a lot of face, really. You know, making people laugh is a seriously win-face situation. A lot of very ugly comics get laid. (laughs) So basically, even the self-deprecating comics end up really looking pretty cool on stage. So it turns out that self-deprecating humor doesn't really lose you face. And like, you know, you saw in my show, like the Xiongnu stuff, the leftover woman stuff, Mm -hmm. loads of women in, in China do jokes about being leftover women and like, you know, that they're not married yet. And there's a lot of self-deprecating stuff. And it's going down really well. Because at the end of the day, you can talk about losing face all you want. But when you get 100 Chinese people in a room and all worried about losing face. And then somebody's up on stage saying, fucking, well, I'm losing face every day. And they're all going, oh, we're all fucking losing face every day. Oh, yeah. fucking thank God. I'm not the only one losing fucking face. So it's, you know, it's cathartic oh the God. same way that it works here. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just that, you know, the, what, what I think is really working in stand-up comedy's favor in China is that China has gone through this massive change over the last 30 years, since 1978. Young people have grown up in the, you know, in the one-child policy. They've also grown up in a massive economic change and they don't really have a voice, like a comedic voice, definitely, that really represents what they're going through. And then these comedians are coming up and they're being themselves. Other Chinese comedy forms, even if people say they're them, they're not really them. These guys are getting up, guys and girls, they're getting up, they're being themselves. And a whole generation of people are going, oh, fuck, this is, t- I totally get this. This is us. And I think that's when, I don't, think, I don't know if people feel that as much now, but I think when stand-up began to sort of blow up Certainly the current form as we know it, a lot of the audience were just going, fuck, yeah, this, I connect to this. You know, so Chinese people are connecting to it, I think, in a, a really deep way. Possibly a way that, like, you'd be better going back to the 60s and 70s to feel what that would have been like. Yes. Because they don't know what it is and they're finding it. Do you know what I mean? 
So listen, we've got like we've got about one minute left. I just want to ask you. I mentioned before what can possibly be next. Either you move to China and become the one white guy working in China and make well, there's, there's, there's a few of them already. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you get them whacked, then you move yeah. to China. <laughs> I get them. I get, I get, get them, them to say something critic. against the government and get yeah. them in jail. <laughs> <laughs> um, or you, what do you do next? What's the next show? Is it you learn to play the saxophone as a kind of blow-off year, and then you try and learn brain surgery? What is it? <laughs> well, I don't have. I don't actually have a next because I'm so I'm still quite immersed in what has just been. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really. I haven't really totally let go of China yet, and uh, I'm still really enjoying doing this show. Like this show is just a little bit different to what I've done before because I, I can go everywhere with it, and I like going to new places with it. So, to be honest, the only thing that I definitely know is next is I hope to do as much as I possibly can with the Chinese abroad as much as possible because I want to keep doing stuff in Chinese. But it's very hard to do it in China. It's very hard to like make a living performing in China. You know, the industry is not as evolved as it is here. Uh, so I want to try to do as much as I can with Chinese and, and with that sort of cross-cultural thing and, the, you know, sort of share the things that I've learned uh, in the time being. And then with them, we'll just we'll see what, we'll see what happens. But I, I'm, I'm just going to take it easy. You know? I don't believe you for a second. <laughs> I don't think anyone well, here I'm not married you. yet. I'm 39. I have a Chinese girlfriend. I really need to lock that down. <laughs> you know, the Chinese got in my brain about that. You know, they were yeah, getting on right. to me about not being married for so long. I started to feel like a loser. I mean, it was a serious loose face situation. So I'm looking to get some face back. I quite, I really love my girlfriend and she's in China now and it's, she's an actor and a comedian. So it's very hard to get her to believe that the West has anything to offer her because it's not a huge market for non-English speaking actresses in oh the West. Okay. So I really just need to, you know, I really need to sort of just like actually look after the stuff that matters. Because I can tell you right now, we were joking about my dad loving getting back on stage, but the thing that mattered most was his family. And as much as I love my job, I don't want to be sitting there at the end going, Jesus, I didn't want to end up like my dad regretting my performance life. Now I fucking, now I fucking regret <laughs> not having a family. You can't fucking win in this life. So I'm going to look after that shit. There is no better place to leave it than there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Des Bishop. Thank you. Thanks, man. So that was Des. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us to that. Thanks to Des uh, for coming along. Uh, he was uh, very, very kind. Uh, and Des, I don't think, was aware of this show or me beforehand. So it's very nice uh, if, if anyone out there, as I know, increasingly comics are saying, I was just speaking to insert name of high profile comic friend of mine and saying hey you should uh, you should do the show you should do it that's starting to happen so thank you anyone that did that on my behalf with des uh coming up next loads and loads well we've got uh, we've got nick mohammed you remember i recorded that conversation a few weeks ago uh that is absolutely brilliant and we're also going to be discussing his uh, small but significant role in the new matt damon film the martian uh, towards the end of that podcast so look forward to that loads of great stuff on his brilliant comic creation Mr Swallow that's out next week and the next few ones that I'm doing over uh, the ones that I've got booked in uh, just these I'm just giving you a little heads up here so you can uh, do your homework and learn as much as you can about these acts so that you can uh, more fully appreciate the shows uh, currently in the diary we've got Ian Stone Mitch Ben is going to be my guest live uh, in Tallinn at the Estonia Comedy Festival Mark Watson will be my guest at the Welsh Festival we never name Zoe Lyons is coming up soon as well. She's not quite in the diary, but uh, I'm I'm sort of revising her stuff because uh, I'm very keen to get Zoe in as soon as possible. And the Midnight Beast. Some of you will be aware of the Midnight Beast. Um, I first encountered them with Mark Olver at Latitude, or possibly I think maybe it was 
festival. No, it was at Latitude maybe three years ago. Me and Mark Oliver stood outside a tent in which the, the sort of fake rapper trio, fake rap trio, I don't know what they'd call it. Lonely Island call it fake rap. We'll go with that. Um, they're kind of a three-person boy band and they mock all the tropes of boy bands whilst also performing live all the tropes of boy bands. And there was just an audience of... of 15-year-old girls screaming and going out of their minds and me and Mark at the back feeling very old and going, what is this? And we watched a bit of them and they were just hilarious. Now, I know they've gone on to do lots. You could search for them, uh, Google them. They've got loads of very, very funny uh, musical comedy videos. Um, I'm, I think that the, late, the one I saw most recently is a, a thing called The Main One. Start with that. It's very, very funny. Um, and uh, though I, I bumped into Stefan at the Chortle Awards recently, and uh, so we're going to record an episode with The Midnight Beast. So check those guys out and uh, add to their many millions of YouTube hits. I like to throw you a curveball every so often. Let's, uh, let's call them a curveball one. Uh, very excited about that. So that's who's coming up uh, shortly. Get your research in, uh, send in any questions for any of those acts, uh, info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet me at comcompod. Donate at comedianscomedian.com and remember FAF is the code at sohotheatre.com to get money off your tickets, 25% off your tickets for Nina Conti on the 5th of May. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Des. This episode was co-produced by Nathan Wood. Uh, the podmin was Olivia Phipps. I've been Stu Goldsmith and I'll speak to you very soon. <laughs>